Hey everyone, welcome back to Southern Bride Storytime. I know you've been waiting for this because in both versions, the movie and the book, we have now reached the infamous Blue Caterpillar. Alice was looking for food to make her grow or shrink, as was usual in Wonderland at this point. She's more used to changing when she eats than not changing when she eats. When she finds a huge mushroom about the size of herself, um, and the top of it on sitting on top of it, sorry, was a large blue caterpillar smoking a hookah and taking no notice of her. Who are you? Was a popular catchphrase in the UK based on a book called Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, because if you're going to make a title for a book, you may as well pick one that rolls off the tongue, right? So Disney's caterpillar, when he says, who are you, is actually probably miss I don't want to say mispronouncing so much as putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable for this to make sense to a British audience who are gonna or in the time would get this kind of slang reference it's who are you emphasis on the first and the last word but um I don't know I did some research it's doesn't seem to have any special meaning. It was just a phrase that was really popular around London about the time that Alice in Wonderland was written. My guess would be it's basically the Victorian version of when was up was the big deal back in like the 90s and 2000s. I think it's kind of like that, where it's really virtually meaningless, super annoying, but just something that was everywhere you went, no matter how hard you tried to avoid it. So I think Carol made a reference to that and to the um, Madness of Crowds book in his own book here. Um, part of why this is also connected is because it's said in the book of the Madness of Crowds that the phrase supposedly popped up like a mushroom. One day it was unheard of and unknown, the next day it was everywhere. And uh, Carol did own a copy of the book about the Madness in Crowds, so I think... Um, I think the Disney interpretation when the caterpillar asks Alice, who are you, was really meant to be, who are you? It doesn't really matter. It's just kind of an interesting look at the uh, the society at the time when Carol wrote the book. However, remember, Disney wrote the, his book specifically to appeal to American audiences. So the fact that this was kind of a British cultural touch point probably didn't matter all that much to him. Now, um, the psychedelic interpretation of Alice, boosted by Jefferson Airplane's song White Rabbit, also started to kind of center around the character of the Blue Caterpillar. A lot of people in the 60s were doing a lot of questionable stuff, and they came to interpret Alice in Wonderland as being kind of related to a lot of the things that they were doing to their poor little brains at this time. And uh, they saw things like the hookah-smoking caterpillar as evidence that perhaps Lewis Carroll was also under the influence of some kind of mind-altering substance when he wrote the book. Now, all of his diaries that have been gone through and most of his really serious biographers that have read these diaries argue that that's likely to be impossible. The man was a cleric and uh, was very meticulous about documenting his his health and nutrition and fitness, and there's just no evidence of any, uh, any drug-related incidents that he in particular had, but um, people kind of 
want to see what they want to see. Um, the, really the best, best um, connection we can find between Alice and drug culture that's actually provable is that Aldous Huxley, who was nearly chosen to write the script for Alice, also wrote about a drug-related incident he had after the movie of Alice came out. Because remember, the drug um, craze didn't start until about ten years after Alice in Wonderland movie came out. And uh, he called this written work that he wrote about his drug incident The Doors of Perception, which inspired the band The Doors, who were a massive influence on the 60s drug culture. So, you know, it's, I don't know. I mean, he didn't even get hired to write the actual script, so it is really a feather-light connection between Huxley, The Doors, and Alice. But apparently it's there, but that's about as close as we can get. We still can't truly connect them, because again, Huxley was not, in the end, hired to write the script for Alice, and uh, the drug thing became a big deal like ten years after the movie came out, so who knows. Now, Lewis... Sorry, Lewis Carroll's Caterpillar's hookah is only mentioned when he takes it into and out of his mouth, whereas Disney actually leans into the hookah and has him blowing multicolored smoke rings that turn into words and animals, etc., when he's talking to Alice. Um, Let's see, yeah, and again, Lewis Carroll, I've got more notes here, was an Anglican deacon, um, in fact, wrote passionate diary entries, journal essays, newspaper columns about um, the dangers of opium and how it's so bad for children, even though opium at the time was basically like cough medicine, like everybody had it in their house. So it's it's pretty unlikely this guy was trying to talk kids into doing drugs when he seemed to make it his mission in life for that not to happen. I don't know. I'm I'm not a big fan of the psychedelic interpretation of Alice, just because I think it's it's very, very... It's a very, very thin thread. It's just because something weird's happening doesn't mean it's a drug-inflected weird, you know? Um, I think that's kind of a cynical way to look at things, especially when the book is deliberately nonsense literature. If the book were trying to take itself seriously, then maybe you could draw something from that, but it's really not. It's nonsense from start to finish, so it's... In fact, it even places itself within the setting of a dream, which I don't know about you, but some of my dreams have been weird. I remember one of them I had in high school. I was talking to somebody in a library, and one of my friends went dancing by in a tutu behind us. You know, it's, it's dreams don't often make sense, and so I think the nonsense and chaos of Alice's world in Wonderland fits perfectly within the context of it being a dream, because dreams are crazy. That's just my take on it. Um, let's see. So, Disney's version of the circular conversation between Alice and the Caterpillar is very close to the book, except for her difference in her recitation. In the movie, she does the How Doth the Little Crocodile poem that we see her do several chapters ago in the book. Um, whereas in the book, she recites You Are Old Father William, which is absolutely brilliant. It's probably my favorite poem on planet Earth. You Are Old Father William. Definitely look it up. Um, yeah, she she recites it, and it's in the movies referenced by Tweedledee and Tweedledum, but you don't actually get to hear the whole poem. Um, it's a another parody, and it's Lewis Carroll, you know, using his Weird Al skills again to parody a popular poem in the day, much of which has been kind of lost to time. And uh, 
he goes ahead and parodies it, and sometimes in many ways the parody outlives the original. This is another situation where we see the Disney version of the story and the book version of the story kind of crisscross each other like a braid, which makes the telling a little bit more complicated when I'm trying to compare them back and forth. After her argument with the caterpillar, he tells Alice that one side of the mushroom will make her grow taller and the other will make her grow shorter. So she stretches her arms as wide as she can and plucks a chunk from each side. Alice takes a little nibble from the right-hand side and shrinks so fast that her chin smacks her in her own foot. I think instead she nibbles the other side of the mushroom, though she struggles to do so because her chin is pressed so hardly against her shoe. She then grows so suddenly that she can't find her shoulders. Her head is held high above the treetops by her vast expanse of a neck. She then tries to bring her head closer to her body to get a better look, and she finds that she can bend and maneuver her neck any which way, which causes an annoying pigeon to think that she's a serpent. In both the book and the movie, this bird is just the worst. The pigeon thinks Alice is after her eggs, and her best self-defense is apparently to be as annoying as pigeonly possible. It's, it's rough. Even as a kid, this was a part of the movie that I'm like, oh my gosh, just make her be quiet. I was a pretty loud kid, folks. I mean, we've, we've established at this point that I like to talk, and this pigeon doesn't talk. She shrieks. It's really, really annoying. Alice kind of adjusts her height again and again, nibbling at one piece and then another until she's back to her right size, and leaves the pigeon behind to look for the garden that she saw through the keyhole in the door, while Disney's Alice hops off to see if she can find the white rabbit. This kind of emphasizes the major difference between the plot of Disney's Alice versus the book's Alice. The book's Alice is trying to get into the beautiful garden she saw from the room with the glass table, whereas Disney's Alice is single-mindedly, determinedly chasing down that white rabbit. I don't know why, but that's what she feels she's got to do. Whereas the book Alice is immediately distracted from the white rabbit immediately when she finds that little door in the room with the glass table. Here the books, we reach the pig and pepper chapter. I'm pretty sure I've discussed this on another podcast back when I was the shivering mouse. And it's a, it's a rough one. Um, just like um, Alice meets the Duchess who violently shakes her baby when he sneezes due to the amount of pepper that the cook is using. The cook seems to be trying to kill them both, as she keeps throwing pots and pans, etc. at them, and the footman of the Duchess is completely insufferable. Then the Duchess leaves to go play croquet with the Queen and casually chucks her baby at Alice. As Alice walks away from the cottage, the baby turns into a pig and leaves her behind. I think Disney skips this scene entirely, probably to avoid all the crazy child abuse going on in it. It's it's a really violent, disturbing scene. There was a, a semi-live-action version of Alice in Wonderland they made when I was growing up that actually made this scene, and uh, I'm, I'm kind of glad Disney kept it out. This It's a creepy scene, both in the book and in the live-action. It just makes your stomach uncomfortable. I don't even know what it is because it's just a fictional book, but I'm glad Disney left this chapter out. It was kind of gross. The only part of the chapter they kept was the Cheshire Cat, which is the Duchess's cat, and that's kind of the only content from that chapter that they left in the book. Not even the Duchess herself makes it. Instead, Disney's version heads into the woods where she meets the Cheshire Cat singing about the Jabberwocky. He directs her to the Mad Hatter and March Hare, as he does in the book. 
Alice decides that, since she's seen a hatter before, she'd rather see the hare. She wanders up to a garden where there are only three guests packed right next to each other on a long, long table with tons and tons of tea settings. The Mad Hatter and March Hare were using the Dormouse as an elbow rest as they talked together. Seems a little rude, but you know. I guess when you're familiar with your friends, sometimes you're rude to be funny. In the movie, the Dormouse is hidden inside a teapot, and the Hatter and Hare are singing the unbirthday song. In the books, the idea of an unbirthday doesn't come up until the looking glass. In both versions, when the tea gang see Alice, they exclaim that there is no room at the table. Alice in the books is more rude and abrasive about joining without an invite, but both Alices settled in anyway. Disney's tea party goes on about unbirthdays. Disney cherry picks parts of the book during this party, and the Disney version is much more silly and much less hostile. The March Hare especially is pretty harsh about how rude it is for Alice to join the party when she hasn't been invited. So, you know, it, it's it's kind of funny. The the party scene in general is is much grumpier in the book, but the overall feel of it is pretty similar. Then we come to the riddle, of course, why is a raven like a writing desk? It's asked in both versions, and it was never intended to have an answer, but readers harassed Lewis Carroll so much that he eventually did make up an answer. However, the the answer that he made for why is the riddle like a writing desk had something to do with Oh, I don't even remember. It, it was a nonsense answer, of course, because it's a nonsense question. But it had the word never in it, and he deliberately misspelled never so that it was raven backwards. But when he published the answer in the newspaper, the editor actually corrected the spelling error, taking away from some of the clever wordplay of the answer. But really, you don't need to know the answer to why is a raven like a writing desk, because it was never intended to have one. That was kind of the point. Here, in Disney's version only, the White Rabbit enters the scene and redirects the plot. Because, again, Disney's version of Alice is very set on that White Rabbit, so every now and then we got to get a little peek of him just to remember what her goal is. In the book, the Hatter is sad that his watch is two days slow. The Hatter's watch shows the date, but not the time. Here, in the book, the subject changes while the, in the movie they do surgery on the watch and toss the rabbit out. Alice tries to go after him. In the book, when the Hatter tells Alice his riddle has no answer, she is amazed that he doesn't do something better with his time. The Hatter then tells Alice that he and Time used to be good friends. But they quarreled at a concert by the Queen of Hearts, where he was accused of killing Time. Now Time has stopped him in one moment, six o'clock tea time, forever. Then the March Hare interrupts to try to get Alice to tell them a story. When she says she doesn't know one, they wake the Dormouse. The Dormouse comes from the word Dormir, and it's a species of mouse that's both nocturnal and hibernates all winter. So really, this little dude spends more of his life asleep than awake. Um, but that's why he always seems so sleepy. So again, going back to the people in the 60s always trying to make something in Alice all about drugs, a lot of them say that the Dormouse's droopy eyes and... His slow, slurred speech are because he's on drugs or alcohol. It's actually Disney trying to portray that the Dormouse is exhausted. He's not supposed to be awake during the day, so he's 
dozy and drowsy, which if you ask a police officer is still just as bad for your driving as being drunk, but it is arguably not the same thing, especially with regards to a children's movie. So, no, the Dormouse is not under some kind of mind-altering substance. He's tired. He's supposed to be sleeping during the day, and uh, who knows, you know, it's a... The March, the March Hare is supposed to be in mad, which means it must be March, April, or May. So he's probably, the Dormouse that is, probably just waking up from his winter hibernation and is still trying to get his night-day stuff in order here, which is part of why the Hatter and Hare are so protective of his sleep cycle. Apparently he gets pretty crabby when he's kept awake when he doesn't need to be. Now, I went ahead and looked up Dormouse on, on Google, and, like, the actual animal, not the animated cartoon, but the actual creature of Dormouse, actually pretty cute little fellas. I, I definitely encourage you to look that one up, too. They're pretty adorable. I don't know if you can get them as pets here or in the UK or anywhere. They're pretty cute. They're cuter than, like, your normal pet mouse, I think. I thought they were pretty adorable, so... Anyway, they wake the poor guy up. He's supposed to be sleeping right now because it's the daytime, but the hatter and the hare are kind of jerks. So they go ahead and wake up their poor teeny little friend, and he tells the story of three sisters who lived in a treacle well. Treacle was once given to help cure illness, so wells with water that was thought to have restorative properties were called treacle wells. But the dormouse is dozing off part of the way through the story on and off, and uh, they scuffle again, and eventually Alice leaves in a huff. The three sisters in the story are thought to be kind of a reference to Alice and her two sisters as well. So you see lots of repetition of the number three in the story of Alice in Wonderland. Partially that's a literary device. Most fairy tales have repetitions of three and seven are usually the most popular numbers. Sometimes it goes as far as 13, but those three numbers tend to be the most popular in literature. But also, remember Lewis Carroll is telling this story to three little girls at the time, just segments of it at a time, and then he commits it to books. So lots of times, too, the number three would be strongly on his mind because of his particular audience when he's telling the tale. Um, as Alice huffs away from the mad tea party, both the movie and the book version say that it's the stupidest tea party she's ever been in to in her life probably not wrong. Hopefully it's the stupidest one she ever will go to. She finds a tree with a door that takes her back into the long hall with the glass table from the beginning of the, mo of the movie of the book. It's very frustrating for us as a reader. I remember when I got to that part, I'm like, oh my gosh, you've got to be kidding me. We're back at the beginning. But Alice is not frustrated. Alice is actually happy to be somewhere familiar where she has some idea how things work. She first grabs the golden key off the table. Again, first grabbed the golden key off the table rather than shrinking herself, then trying to get the key. She's learning from her mistakes, folks. That's really what growing up is about, and that's really what childhood is for, is to learn from those mistakes, and it looks like Alice is going ahead and doing that. Then she uses the mushroom to shrink back to fit into the little door. So book Alice's goal the whole time has been to get into this little garden, and it sounds like she just managed to pull it off. Finally, she's in the beautiful garden in the books, while Disney's Alice leaves the tea party in a grumpy huff and ends up running into the Tulgy Wood. This wood is actually not in Wonderland at all. It is borrowed, yet again, from the Looking Glass, specifically the Jabberwocky poem, which only mentions Tulgy Wood once. 
The Tulji Wood was the lair of the Jabberwock in the book of poetry that Alice was reading, but she never actually visits it in the book. She just reads about it. Disney was going to include a whole scene with the Jabberwocky in the movie, but the scene was eventually cut. There were lots of reasons people think this might be from uh, it being just too scary to taking up too much time or distracting too much from the main theme of the film. But there was even a song they, they had ready for this scene, so it's kind of sad that it was eventually cut. Disney's Alice gets hopelessly lost in the Tulji Wood with the help of some local not-so-helpful critters. You'll notice almost any creature or person Alice runs into is more of an obstacle than an assist, and yet she continues to trust the Cheshire Cat. Terrible choice, really. Um, unlike Carol's Alice, um, who keeps her own way about her and is just kind of very strong-willed about everything and just kind of rolls with the punches, Disney's Alice finally here gets discouraged, frustrated, and cries until the Cheshire Cat opens the door in the tree that takes her directly to the Queen of Hearts garden, putting her back on track with the book. In the book, the cards get along much worse than they do in the movie. What cards? The cards that are painting the roses red. They're painting the roses red. Yeah, those those cards. Um, they don't sing in the book. They just kind of squabble. They're, they're kind of nasty to each other. Kind of a running pattern of the characters in this story. It really is. Even Alice is kind of nasty. Like, everybody's a little bit mean and grumpy in these books. I don't know why. I don't know. It's kind of irritating. But anyway, the uh, cards get along much better in the Disney version where they're kind of all on the same page trying to keep from having their heads lopped off. The issue is the cards had accidentally painted white roses and the queen wanted red. If you look at the cards, I believe they are all from the suit of spades, which is kind of funny considering they're the royal gardeners. I don't know much about playing cards or card games, but I, I thought it was funny. But they painted the white roses, the queen wanted red, and so she would have them beheaded for this mistake. So they're trying to quickly paint the white roses red while they have the chance. They don't really get much of a chance to finish, though, because the queen and her entire entourage shows up, a whole deck of cards and the white rabbit. And it's kind of an interesting description when you read it in the book, because, like, the royal family and royal children are all the suit of hearts, and then there's courtiers, which are one, I think, the diamonds, and then there's the knights and the army, which I think are the clubs, and then, of course, the servants and gardeners are the spades. So it's kind of neat. It's Carol obviously put a whole lot of thought into the deck of cards and, and the roles that each card would play if it were, like, a little, like, a little, I don't know, court, I guess. Um, in the book, the king has a little more presence than he does in the movie, but I do love his one dedicated fan in the movie. It just cracks me up, where the White Rabbit has this huge fanfare. Her Majesty! Her Excellency! The Queen of Hearts! And everybody cheers, and then he goes, And the king. And <laughs> just this one guy in the crowd goes, Hooray! I don't know why. That, that's my sense of humor. It just kind of cracks me up. He's got like this one diehard fan. I have picture somebody with like one of those big foam fingers with a little crown on the top of it. Like, yeah, my king. He's got one guy. I hope that guy's getting a tax break. <laughs> the queen spots the painted roses and orders the cards to be executed. In the movie, this is kind of the first thing she does when she arrives on the scene. In the book, she introduces herself to Alice first, then gives the order to kill the cards, but Alice kind of pops the cards into a little flower pot so they escape. The queen then invites Alice to play croquet. 
Disney's Queen of Hearts borrows a few lines here and there from the Red Queen in The Looking Glass. Now, I don't know how many of you have read The Looking Glass versus Wonderland. The Red Queen isn't really a super fun lady to be around either, but um, she's more just kind of stern and strict, and she has a heckin' dominant personality. Like, she's very dominant. I, I don't get along with those kind of people. I try to avoid them. I do not like to be dominated. And so, you know, I just don't like to be bossed around and a lot of people don't. So a lot of people don't like the Red Queen. I get that. I don't particularly like her either. But if I had to choose between the Red Queen and the Queen of Hearts to spend my afternoon with, it'd be the Red Queen. Because yes, I'd be, my back would be sore from not slouching all day, but at least I'd probably leave the event with my head still intact. The Queen of Hearts is not stern or dominant or unpleasant. The Queen of Hearts is evil. She pretty much wants to behead anybody and anyone who gets in her way just for funsies. Um, it's terrible. I think there is like a line in there where she says something about, you need to behead people more, Cedric. Chop, chop. Blood everywhere? It's wonderful! So, something to that effect, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but it's, she's a horrible, violent, terrifying person. So I do kind of feel bad that in both versions of Alice in Wonderland that Disney made, they mixed the Red Queen from Through the Looking Glass and the Queen of Hearts into one generally unpleasant lady, when really the Red Queen she's annoying, you know, she's tough to deal with, but we all have dealt with that one person at a family reunion or the one person from school or whatever that you don't particularly like, but you can tolerate for a few hours here and there to be polite. It's better than the fight, right? To me, the Red Queen is like that, whereas the Queen of Hearts is genuinely somebody that you want to have like a police officer around while they're in the room with you. So so it's, it's quite a difference. I always get kind of sad that they mix the two together and they even mix their lines in both movies, which... It's kind of annoying. But anyway, then Alice talks to the White Rabbit about the Duchess being sentenced to execution. But before she can learn the whole story, she's called in to play croquet. In both versions, you use a hedgehog for a ball, a flamingo for a mallet, and the cards as goals, with no one taking turns and the queen throwing out executions like confetti. Doesn't sound like a super fun game. It honestly sounds super stressful. <laughs> I I like to video game myself, but I like to play games to relax, and this does not sound like that kind of game, friends. Not at all. In the book, Alice is looking for kind of a sneaky exit when she sees the Cheshire Cat, in the movie, the Cheshire Cat teases and taunts the Queen until she is violently angry and wants to execute Alice, but settles on a trial on her, on her tiny husband's request. Now, there's kind of a lot of symbolism here, too, in the sense that all Alice has wanted throughout the entire book is to get into this tiny little garden, and yet she finds when she gets to the garden that the people in the garden are even more dangerous than anybody else she's you know, come across on her way there. And I think that that, again, can be symbolic of Carol talking about how little kids, you know, they want to grow up, they want to grow up, they want to grow up, and it's not until they've actually arrived there and grown up and can't go back and enjoy childhood that they realize that being a grown-up really sucks. <laughs> and it's just awful, like, 
all the time, right? But when you're a kid, you think, oh, you've got all this autonomy and all you can make all these fun choices. You don't realize that the choices are really based on what your bills will cover at the time, so you don't really have any choices at all. As a kid, especially Alice's age, which is like six to eight years old, you have no concept of that. So I think this is kind of a way to show even the garden, which she has idealized to be this perfect, beautiful, wonderful place, this place she's been striving for her whole time, is just as chaotic and dangerous, if not more so, and just as undesirable, if not more so, than everywhere else she's been so far. Um, let's see. In the book, the Cheshire Cat then draws the attention of the king, who wants him executed, but since he has chosen to only reappear as a head, they're all kind of stumped as to how to behead it. The executioner is saying that you can't cut off something's head if it doesn't have anything to cut the head off from, and the king, his argument is that anything with a head can be beheaded. The queen just wants, you know, something to hurry up and die. So all in all, they're kind of squabbling on and on and on. When they turn on Alice to ask her advice, she tells them that the queen, or that the queen, that the cat belongs to the duchess, so they'd better ask her about it. So the queen goes and gets the duchess out of jail and wants to have her come deal with her cat, but in the distraction of going to get the duchess, the cat disappears. While everyone is off looking for the cat, the duchess takes Alice by the arm, and she is in a much better mood than she was in her pepper-filled cottage with her screaming baby. However, she's still really unpleasant. She makes Alice super uncomfortable, like she clings too tight to her and grips her tightly with her body. She digs her chin into, like, Alice's shoulder as she's walking by her. It's just, I don't know, it's kind of kind of creepy again. The adult to, The adults in this are a little eerie. Also, if you look at like the original Tennille drawings too, it makes it even more creepy because the Duchess and the Queen of Heart and the Mad Hatter, they'll have these huge heads. So when you picture like t normal little proportioned Alice with this giant head digging into her shoulder, I don't know, it's gross. Um, so the Queen interrupts and brings Alice to a griffin who takes her to meet the Mock Turtle. The two chapters containing the Mock Turtle, for me, were always some of the hardest ones to get through reading this book because they're not really related to anything else that's happening. I mean, I know a lot of stuff in Alice in Wonderland is not related to other stuff in Alice in Wonderland. There's not a lot of connection there. But it's just like you're getting to like the climax of the story and it feels like a huge, unnecessary interruption and you really don't gain anything from it besides some nautical-based dad jokes and uh, some more nonsense poetry. Um, I don't know, the Griffin does explain to Alice at one point that the king pardons almost all of the people that the queen sentences to death, which is why there's you know still anybody in this kingdom at all. And uh, then Alice meets the melancholy mock turtle and uh, I mean the chapter's kind of funny. If you, It definitely works better if you read it, especially reading it out loud, because a lot of it is spelling jokes and jokes that have, you know, two, like, two words that sound the same but are spelled differently and mean something different. So it loses a lot of meaning if I read it to you versus you actually reading it aloud on your own. Um, so I'm really not going to dig too deep into that. It's just kind of the, the mock turtle talking about his upbringing for some reason. That's apparently worth a couple chapters in the book. And then uh, Alice gets swept back to the castle for the trial of the Knave of Hearts. In the movie, 
It's Alice who's on trial. But in the book, the jury is made out of critters and birds, and the king is the judge, and Bill the lizard is a juror, and he has a squeaky slate pencil, so Alice steals it. It's crazy. The knave is on trial for stealing the queen's tarts. In the movie, the charge against Alice is that she viciously enticed the queen to play croquet and teased her until she lost her temper. Of course, as a kid, I don't catch the charges thrown at her by the white rabbit because he speaks so quickly. And uh, now as an adult, when you listen to the charges put against Alice, it's really very ridiculous because the queen just kind of drags her into playing croquet basically out of fear. And now she blames Alice for making her play croquet. I don't know. It's it's frustrating, but it's really... It's funny. It's like watching... <laughs> it's like watching mainstream media news to listen to this rabbit give the list of crimes that Alice has committed against the Queen. I'm like, boy, you guys sure know that double talk, don't you? You've been studying from politicians. In the book, the King and not the Queen is running the show, and he calls the Mad Hatter as the first witness. He had tea, bread, and butter with him. The King bullies and terrifies the Hatter, who's already afraid to be there because of his fight with the Queen last time he came to the palace. You know, the one that made it so that he perpetually lives at six o'clock? That fight. He doesn't want her to recognize him. During their discussion... Alice begins to grow bigger again. In the Disney version, the Queen calls the March Hare as the witness. The Mad Hatter is trembling under the Queen's gaze in the books, trying to answer the King's questions, but he is so terrified that nothing he says makes any sense at all. The guinea pigs start laughing and cheering, so while a few of them get stuffed into a bag, the Hatter is dismissed and runs off before the Queen can recognize him. Next, the king calls the duchess's violent, pepper-obsessed cook to the stand. Remember her? I talked about her a few minutes ago. I didn't go very into depth with that chapter because I don't like it. It makes me pretty uncomfortable. Tried to just give you the Reader's Digest version because here she is again, and that's the only way we know who this crazy lady is. He asks her what the tarts are made of, and she says of pepper, to which the sleeping dormouse screams out, Treacle! In the chaos that follows, the cook also sneaks off. Uh, it's really the best approach you can have to the, this royal family. It's, it's kind of crazy. Just kind of look for an opening and get out. The king is getting very frustrated as the white rabbit calls his next witness, Alice. In the movie, the queen calls upon the dormouse, who treats her to his version of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Bat. How I wonder what you're at. Then the queen calls the Mad Hatter, who was home drinking tea during the event, because so naturally they all burst into the unbirthday song which you know alice is just delighted by right the hatter gives the queen this crazy big hat slash crown extension puff thing that eventually turns into the cheshire cat as always in the presence of a cat everybody goes nuts because the whole crowd is made out of like guinea pigs and birds and other stuff that are afraid of cats in the melee, the queen is splatted with a face full of jam and conked on the head by the king's gavel, both of which somehow end up in Alice's hands, and the queen is hot. Alice quickly pops the mushroom halves into her mouth, and the queen stops her advance on the girl when she sees that she is now quickly filling the entire room. Alice gives the queen a piece of her mind, not realizing that she is shrinking back to size the entire time. If she calls her like a fat, pompous old tyrant or something like that. 
the entire court pursues her as she flees through the maze and back through most of the scenes she's already been through in the movie finally she reaches the talking doorknob and begs her, him to let her out to which he says she already is outside and shows her herself sleeping on the bank she shouts at herself to wake herself up and her sister she and her sister walk home for tea time in the book alice is giant because she's returned to her normal size which is huge compared to a pack of cards the king asks her what she knows about the tart theft and she replies that she knows nothing then the white rabbit presents a nonsense poem as evidence against the knave alice is getting more and more frustrated with this foolishness and gets a little salty when she sasses the queen the cards leap into the air to attack her she screams covers her face and closes her eyes only to open them a second later to be back on the bank with her sister alice told her sister all about her dream and then ran off to tea the sister sat upon the bank, daydreaming about seeing the world through the imagination of a child again. As I mentioned before, Alice in Wonderland has been interpreted many, many different times by many, many different groups of people. Often, the interpretation of Alice in Wonderland, what everybody thinks that it means during the time period, actually reflects more upon the time period where the story is being interpreted than it does on the actual story itself. For example, in the, th in the 30s, everybody had a pretty strictly Freudian interpretation of Alice in Wonderland. Everybody had kind of a new approach to psychology since the works of Sigmund Freud had been written, and they used that new approach to psychology, you know, disproven as it is now, to analyze Alice in Wonderland. So you ended up with some pretty weird interpretations. In the 60s, as I mentioned before, people were doing a lot of heavy, terrible, terrible drugs, rotting their brains, making weird music, and uh, they subscribed more to a psychedelic interpretation of Alice. At this point, both the movie and the book were in existence, and they tended to assume that Lewis Carroll was involved in some of the same mind-altering substances that they themselves were involved in, and so they, again, had that interpretation of Alice in Wonderland, which led to, again, a lot of nonsense that had nothing to do with the book when it was written. Then in the 90s, we had a pedophile panic. I don't remember this much. I remember being told at school and stuff not to talk to strangers and all of that, and I remember um, when that little boy, Adam, disappeared. I don't remember it happening, but I remember my mom telling me about it one time when we got separated in a, in a store, and she she panicked, rightfully so. But I did live during this time where there's this, this pedophile panic, this... Uh, as a kid, you don't know what a pedophile is, so we were just told stranger danger all the time. But, um, you know, that led to the more modern people you see now that take this kind of uh, pedophile approach to interpreting Lewis Carroll's friendship with the Lydell girls, even though really he came into that family as a tutor to their older brother and just became a family friend from there on. So again, the interpretations of Alice really tell us more about the times that the work is interpreted in then they tell us about the work of Alice in Wonderland itself um yeah so just to wrap up definitely go look up what a dormouse is they're super super adorable definitely go read the poem you are old father William to me probably the best part of this entire book um mom before you get mad that I didn't say the walrus and the carpenter is the best part of the book that's from looking glass so yeah definitely look that one up too but it's not technically in Alice in Wonderland the book so 
just kind of a fun fact, something that we all we all think of Tweedledee and Tweedledum when we think of Alice in Wonderland, but they're actually from the Looking Glass. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do like, subscribe, and listen again next week. Please share it with all of your friends. That's kind of what helps it spread and grow and what helps it continue to be produced every week. I make about 20 cents a week doing this podcast, but that will improve with each person that you share it with. So I definitely appreciate you taking the time to tell your friends and family members about this podcast. I have so much fun looking up this information, going through these stories, and it's really fun to see how some of like the older myths and stuff are similar and disparate to each other. And I just enjoy passing along these stories before they're, you know, changed to fit the interpretations of people who want everything to mean this or that. I don't like when real stories get turned into propaganda. It bothers me. So I'm trying to give you as close to the original versions of these stories as I possibly can to better educate you rather than propagandize you. Um, On that note, I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful weekend, and thank you so much for tuning in today. Drive safe.